Hi all, and thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Open House. We're on a mission to develop a new mental health experience for all, because we believe that you can truly experience life advancement without having to spend thousands of pounds on -on one-on-one therapy. We believe that happiness is coming home to yourself under the layers and layers of you that society has told you to be. Now, into the episode, and it's a juicy one. Welcome to the Open House Podcast. One of my friends put you on my radar and she was like, oh my goodness, you two have to connect. And I'm excited actually, because underneath the joking and the laughter, today we're talking about something really, really serious. And I think that a lot of my story, which I'm also going to share, are things that I've not really ever spoken about on this podcast before. So I think that actually brings me perfectly to my first question, which is that I think there's still this misconception within society today that women who end up in these types of situations with these highly toxic people perhaps aren't sort of the strong, independent, fiery women that maybe both of us like to think that we are. And I just wanted to ask your thoughts on that. I didn't ever think that I would end up in a situation with the person that I did. And is that something that you sort of echo or... Is it something that actually you saw sort of growing over time with the people you started dating? My book is about a decade's worth of controlling relationships, right? So there's three main ones. And I basically go from man to man to man. And I make the joke in the book that the shortest time I have was something like 12 hours before I jumped into the next one. (laughs) And so obviously from an outsider's point of view, they would go, oh, well, the reason that you kept falling into abusive relationships is because you went from one to the other to the other. As much as that is probably true, because I didn't take the time in between the relationships to heal and do the work that was needed to stop the cycle. Actually, the truth is that, as I call them in my book, controls, controlling personality types are actually looking for people with characteristics and personality traits that they don't have in order for them to replicate them and con and manipulate more people. Mm. So that is why, and there's a study that I picked up in my book done by Dr. Leanne Leadham, which says basically that people on that sphere of narcissist and psychopath are looking for predominantly women, as you say, yes, men too, it is a gendered crime. But for um, people who are great with other people, who love excitement, who are compassionate, and who are strong-willed people, which by the sounds of things, you fit and I fit too. And that's purely, like I say, so that they can mimic these traits and, and use them to get more people into their into their trap. Yeah, super fascinating. I think there's just this major misconception and actually, it's actually quite the opposite when you put it like that. They're sort of looking for people that are not the doormat. They're the ones that are going to be going out there and being charismatic, et cetera, et cetera. And I think one of the things that I found so interesting from the magazine articles and the book excerpts that I've read so far from you is there are 101 different moments throughout these dating experiences and almost dating career, I would say. Mm. Some of them are macro aggressions, some of them are micro aggressions, and they build up and up and up. And I think that for many, many people in the situation or situations that you've been in and that I have also been in, there comes a breaking point. 
So I was interested in if you feel comfortable sharing, you know, sort of what that breaking point was for you. And predominantly, I guess, in the last cycle, because it was probably the one when you were like, this is so bad that I now need to break this. How you got there, how long it took you to get there? Yeah, I mean, the truth is that when you are on the inside of these relationships I think later we're going to talk about how to actually leave these these relationships but when you're in the inside looking out what I say multiple times is that like these relationships they're not all bad because otherwise you would leave right they have high highs and crippling lows so it's the high highs that you live for all the time so to to kind of uh, put a skew on your question a little bit I'm going to say that Certainly I had a breaking point, but actually I didn't have a breaking point and then go, this is enough because I, I was already broken. But what did happen, and it happened actually years after me leaving the relationships that I was in, was that I kind of was able to have a perspective and I looked back and I was like, oh my God, there were these patterns. I often get asked, yeah, but what's the difference between like just a dickhead and <laughs> someone who's going to destroy your life? And the answer to that is patterns. It's, uh, it's quite simplistic, but it's interesting, I think, for people who are in these relationships to go, oh, my God, I, I can sense that right now. And it's called the cycle of abuse. So when people say, why don't you just leave them? One of the answers that you can give is because I'm chemically addicted. And what I mean by that is it's a hormonal helter skelter. At the top of the cycle of abuse, if you imagine it like a circle, you have love bombing and the honeymoon period where they shower you with compliments. It's you're almost overwhelmed. You hear phrases like they knocked me off my feet. I was swept away by their love. It's almost too much for you. But at the same time, your inner voice is going, especially for women, oh, they're just trying to be nice. Like they're just they're just a good person and they must really like me and I must give them the benefit of the doubt inside there's something a little bit like wrong and if you're looking at the hormones of that you're dealing with dopamine which is like a it's a very strong people think it's addictive it, it's not that's actually if that's false but it is the hormone tied with rewards so your brain is going this is a good thing and then after that we're going down this up the circle onto the side what happens is that there's a, a tension introduced into the relationship I call it walking barefoot on red hot coals because it's not enough to say well on eggshells it's you know I'm sure you know this feeling that you're walking into a room and you almost can't breathe and they turn their phone or you are scared to ask them what your brain is your gut instinct is screaming at you about right you're going if I ask them that there's going to be a huge big row and I can't deal with it right now so then you've got all of the cortisol you've got all the stress hormones coming in right that's a really powerful hormone and then from there, at some point, who knows how long it will take, there will be an explosion. They will lose their shit at you. They will back you against a wall. They will, you know, they don't have to punch you in the face for it to be abuse. They will do something that makes you lose everything that you were holding on to. And that hormone that's introduced there is adrenaline. It's fight or flight. You are literally in a, in a very dangerous situation there. And then this is the bottom of the circle and then we're coming back round. And before you even know it, before you've even felt your feet back on the floor again, you get back into the reconciliation phase where it's unlikely they'll use the word sorry, but they'll certainly make you feel better than you did, even though it was them making you feel that way. And ironically, what do you want most? You want a hug and you want a hug from them because way back there, they were the one who loved you. They were the one who made you feel so good. 
And so you go back to them and then you get into the calm phase and you're back there in a lovely honeymoon. And you see, when you look at it like that in terms of the hormones and chemicals that are at play, that's why there's never such a thing really as like, I knew enough was enough because you are in an addiction here. So that's a long way to answer your question, but I feel it's important to say that don't, for those who are in these relationships, don't wait for your rock bottom. Don't wait for the day that you wake up because I'm guaranteeing you it probably won't come as it didn't for me. I was disposed of, as discarded of, and I'm actually grateful for that because I don't know where I'd be right now if I wasn't. But sometimes they do just go, I've had enough and I'm going to go to the, my next woman. But nine times out of 10, you're just a little plaything, and they'll just keep you on the side. So yeah, I don't think there was a pivotal point, but when I was discarded of and I did the work and I saw about cycle of abuse, I was like, I'm done. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. And I think it is so important what you've just said there is that there doesn't have to be a breaking point. And that is what I experienced. And, you know, a short overview of my story is he was, I would say, slightly less psychopathic or sociopathic than some of the people that you write about in your book. But we were in some horrendous situations. I mean, he definitely had big, big personality disorders, a great deal of narcissism, potentially some sociopathy, a lot of violence, a lot of anger. And when I look back at a lot of the things that should have been classified as breaking points in those relationships, where he had me up against a wall with his hands around my neck saying with rage in his eyes, I am going to fucking kill you. That wasn't enough for me to leave. That's something that I've told very few people because I think that people just cannot quite understand what kind of person would stay after someone had done something like that particularly when all of your friends and family around you or I don't know if you felt this and we'll come on to this in a second but everyone around me could see this man for what he was they didn't like him they could see lots of negative traits they obviously never knew the truth of what was going on but they didn't like him but what was driving me was like you said the addiction cycle and I I'm not ashamed of it now because now I've done the work and been able to break it. I understand that I was powerless before doing the work, but I was obsessed with this man. I was so in love with him. I thought, you know, he was the most attractive person that there was on this planet. But there were very few character traits of his that actually aligned with the way that I felt towards him. And when you explain what you just did with the cycle of abuse, it's so clear that it was just a hormone chemical addiction to this man. So I love that there wasn't for you a breaking point. And I think that for me also, I went through a number of situations that should have been breaking point. And I mean, absolutely like crazy behavior, but still I didn't leave. And me as well, it was a over time, over time, over time, I just started to grow into my own self-worth. But also for me, I started thinking, I cannot have this man as the father of my children. I dread to think what he would do to them. So I guess my next question for you is, do you feel like you ever shared what was going on with you, with people around you? Or like me, did you keep a lot of it silent and just sort of have this facade to friends and family around you? No, because, and this is what I, one of the key things, it was like a manifesto that I wanted to do with my book. I set out some goals that I wanted to um, establish to achieve with the book. And one of them was to rid 
the victims or survivors of toxic shame. And, you know, you said it so clearly there, you know, everyone could see, but I mean, there's a there's a thing that uh, called the fallacy of sunk cost. I use this quite a lot um, when I'm talking to people. And the way I describe it is that if you are, the toxic relationship staying in it is basically like, if you're on the phone to, I don't know, BT, right? And you've been on the phone for 46 minutes and you're on hold and you really want to hang up the phone. But then if you hang up, you would have wasted 46 minutes of your life and it's costing you. But if you just stay on, you may get a solution. You may get the result that you wanted. And that is what it is to stay in a toxic relationship. It's a lo- It would be a lot easier if your initial estimation of the person was correct. And you have to remember that at the beginning of a toxic relationship, a controlling relationship, the perpetrator doesn't matter if they're a narcissist or a psychopath. Like it's important not to, to look as when you are a victim, you will often look for reasons that they are the best person that happened to you rather than I'm going to look for things that are wrong for that very reason, for the fallacy of sunk cost. But when you're going into this and you're like, let's say, staying on the phone line, you want that to end in a, in a beautiful solution, but that solution is never going to come. And so it's more painful for you to hang up the phone than just you just wait because you just think, OK, tomorrow's going to be different. And at the beginning of the relationship, these are the world's best actors. Really, they could like give the best actors in the world a run for their money because they mimic everything that you need. So if you are have got hung up about the way you look, your body looks, or you think that you you're holding too much weight or something like that, let's just say that, and you vocalize at the beginning of the relationship, this is how I feel. Now, on one level, they will not understand that because they have what's called fragile high self-esteem. So they don't get why, why would you pick faults in yourself? But for the sake of this, for getting you into their net, they too will start saying, oh, I, I have the same thing. We're the same person. I also have that feeling. I love this thing too that you like. Whatever you need, they will be, right? So at the beginning, you're like, oh my God, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. And slowly over time, they will use tactics like negging, like gaslighting, like isolation until slowly, by you saying that, you said your friends and family didn't really like them. Well, I'm sure as happened to me, they will go, well, who are you going to pick? Because I'm on your side and they're clearly not. And aren't you big or grown up enough to make your own choices? And you, because you really want it to work and your your self-esteem is eroding by the day, you'll say, well, maybe he's right. Like, maybe they don't have my best interest at heart. And even if you are the closest person to your family ever, you will start turning your back on them. And don't say it's not possible because it, it happened to me. And now I'm like back close with my family. But you lose that sense of who you are. Your identity just goes overnight. Oh, thank you for sharing that. And I think this ties back to the point that you mentioned initially is that we do need to delineate between dickheads and people with these absolute traits, because there are a lot of things that you're saying here that I'm like, okay, those things actually weren't present in this man that I've been talking about. He actually, on 75% of his personality, was actually just a very angry, unstable, erratic man. But then my one of my best friends has just gone through a similar situation. And a lot of things you just said there around he would she's so close to all of her sisters he would isolate her from the family pull her away he would make her stop using social media but never in a you've got to stop using social media always in a oh I would just be careful of posting that picture because um this person might think that and you're going for that job interview and at the time she didn't think anything of it and the final thing that I want to bring up is that like you said 
for her family, they initially said this man is too good to be true. My family never said that. They were like, from, they hated him from day one because my man, very ex-man, was probably not doing the sort of psychopathic, sociopathic sort of traits and like activities and exercises, I guess, that we've been speaking about. So I think it is really important for people to sort of understand that there are different parts and I guess it's a sliding scale of where people sit on that. Mm. Uh, I think that, I guess the next question for me is that I found myself being very sympathetic and empathetic to this person. And all I wanted to do was love him better. And now that is a trait that I have had in more than one relationship. And now I've started going to therapy. I'm very aware that that's, that's on me. That's on the people that I'm choosing. It's on the power that I think I have to help them, et cetera, et cetera. And I would just be interested to know if that's something that you felt at all in your relationship or relationships, or, or was that not quite such an important thing for you? Yeah, I mean, in the book, I talk about that there's, there's power to be found in understanding the difference between fault and accountability. It's never anyone's fault. No one is ever to blame for getting into a relationship with these people. In fact, you could say quite the opposite. It's a, a relatively easy thing to do if you think about all the things that we've spoken about so far. But there is power in saying, hold on a second, I don't want this to happen anymore. So instead of it's about altering the gaze, right? So you're not looking at the gaze, like you're not looking through the eyes of the of the perpetrator. You want to turn back on yourself and say, okay, let's look at the patterns in myself to empower myself and to, to you spoke about self-worth earlier, to raise my self-worth, to know that I'm more than that, more than my circumstances. And that for me was one, it was a really difficult pill to swallow. But in very early on in the book, actually, there's a chapter on codependency. And that that was one of the hardest chapters to write because there's this uh, such a fear of me, for, of mine, to victim blame. To But then having said that, what I began to realise was if I don't start turning back at my behaviour and say, not, not how did I allow this to happen? Because I said that to myself multiple times. But why was it happening to me? And what could I do to stop it? And one of the things was, as you said, codependency. And the thing about codependency is it's not permanent. It's basically you, you like to cast yourself in the lead role of fixer. We women have a tendency to love to fix broken men, right? From being little kids, when we were doing tea parties, we would make sure the teddy bear had more tea than us. We would look after the teddies over our, our own needs. And gradually as we grow up, if you think about like a little boy and a little girl together, in most households in the 80s or 90s, if you had like people coming over to visit, they would look to the little girl and go, go and ask them if they want a drink. Go and get your granny a cup of tea where the kid, the boy is running riot. Now, not always. And there would be people going, no, I didn't have that. I was taught to be equal. It's not really about equality. It's about understanding that your needs are as important, if not more important than other people's. So yeah, I think when I understood that my role in this was to try and fix people, even though I ironically was much more broken at times, that's when I was like, oh, that is one of the keys to breaking this cycle. Yeah, I love that. And I think one of my favorite quotes is, we accept the love that we think we deserve. And when I look back at some of the love that I have accepted over the years, I mean, we haven't even spoken about another boyfriend of mine who later went to prison for fraud. So, I mean, you couldn't get these traits any more 
in someone that's going to go and do that to thousands of people. But I look back and I think at the time, you know, I didn't think I was broken. If someone had said to me, oh, you've got some issues or you need to go and work on some things, then obviously they wouldn't have said it that aggressively. But if someone had said essentially to me, like, you're a little bit broken and I think you could do with some self-love and some self-work, I would have been like, no, no, I'm not. I'm absolutely fine. Sort of, what are you talking about? And then for me, when I started going to therapy, I realized that broken is a very strong word, but ultimately we are holding so many wounds from childhood, from our adult lives, so much that we've lived through that makes us who we are today, Mm. that ultimately we are all sort of scarred is maybe a nice way to put it. And then that shows up in the relationships that we pursue or accept and whatnot. And so a big part of my therapy journey was exploring my family dynamic and love my father to pieces, but he was very emotionally unavailable as a result of what he had gone through as a child. So, you know, always understand with compassion that parents are limited just by through what they've gone through, different generational experiences, et cetera, et cetera. But when I started to explore that and understand my own family dynamics and how actually that was showing up in adulthood and the men I was going for, you know, I was trying to fight for them, fight for them to love me, fight for them to care for me, et cetera, et cetera. It was quite revolutionary. So I think what I wanted to ask you here was, did you go to therapy at any point? Because when I left these uh, very, very toxic relationships, I was not in therapy. And I would love to know kind of how my healing would have been different if I had. So was that something that you dipped your toe into or did you do it alone? Yeah, I, I used to think that I wasn't worth therapy. That was my thing. Right? I used to think that there's people who needed it a lot more than I did. And also because I'd been financially controlled, I had no, I didn't have the money to go to therapy, right? I was like, oh, it's going to cost 50 pounds an hour. And I was not, I, I didn't, I didn't even have the means to like eat properly. I mean, it, this is after a long, long, long time of abuse, abusive relationships. And it wasn't until I hit my absolute rock bottom that I Googled talking therapies. I think I actually Googled free therapy near me and it came up with talking therapies, which is on the NHS. Now, I'm not going to rose tint and be like, everyone can get free therapy because they can't. There's, and especially now, there's a massive waiting list. And obviously, therapy does cost money, but it is available on the NHS. And I was living in London at the time and I was within about 20 minutes, I was on the call to a crisis counsellor and I had my session booked that week. And I mean, I was really at, I couldn't have got any lower really to where I was. And that was a six week session and it basically I mean just to put it in perspective like I turned up on the first or second session and she was like so let's talk about the domestic abuse that you've been through and I was like it's not domestic abuse and she's she goes what 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 do you think it is and I went oh is this a it was a bad relationship now everyone else even to the point where the Met Police sent over a domestic abuse officer I thought that they were underfunded right so I'm going oh god they've sent this woman Nova who like from another department because they haven't got funding to just send anyone else this is so bad she's like no it's domestic abuse still I was like nah I, th- I just not I just don't think so and now as a women's aid ambassador many 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 years later I can look back on it and go oh my god like in the book I call it a hug of belief and the the point about these emotionally abusive relationships by their nature is that they make you feel like it's all in your head and so even when I was writing my book, I would go, did it happen like this? Have I, like, I would question myself because that's what your abuser has you doing. 
you're hysterical, are you on your period, you're paranoid, it's all in your head, you're losing your mind, you're going crazy. These are just some of the things that they will say to you. And you, you will feel like eventually you'll go, maybe I am. Like, maybe I am making a big deal of this and it's not a big deal. Well, the answer is you're not. <laughs> but there are tools, hopefully like my book, that you can read, people can read if they can't afford a load of therapy which is basically just it's the strength of relatable experience and having a look through research and like I say I've drawn on loads of things from ex amazing people psychologists counsellors whatever so hopefully there are points in that book which are enlightening there will be and I think that that's one of the things I love about the book so much is the way that you hybrid the scientific research and the expert commentary with your own experience because that is such a powerful combination. And I think we'll wrap up in a minute talking about sort of some tips or tricks. But before we get there, I just wanted to say that you're right. They make you feel crazy. And I just sort of had a flashback whilst we were talking about that. But like you said, they don't say sorry. I was the one that was always begging on the floor. Sorry, please don't leave. Sorry, please don't leave. I'm so sorry. But actually, I had nothing to be sorry for because I hadn't done anything wrong. But the way that they're able to shift the dynamic of that situation is dangerous and it's not spoken about so I think thank you again for sharing that and I wanted to ask you whether you felt like these experiences you've obviously worked through them or are still working through them making a lot of great growth and progress did you find initially that they really scarred you from thinking about dating again do you think that they sort of made you feel like all men are like this how did you sort of approach moving forward yeah, I mean, that's going to be in my book too, by the way. So <laughs> when I write that, I'll come back on and talk about that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's true. Like, I, I was having a conversation just with a friend this morning who, again, like everyone is going, oh, my friend's going through this right now. It's just it's so prevalent. And I was saying that, yeah, there was a considerable amount of time where I, not only did I not trust men, I didn't trust anyone. I mean, really, I, I, I barely even trusted myself, to be quite honest, which is a very dangerous position to be in. And my instinctual thing was, I because I was still codependent at that point, I don't want to be alone, but I don't trust anyone, right? So you've got these two things butting heads. And I'm going, I was going on dates with awful people because my self-worth was just on the floor. And then it would be a trigger back to an abusive time, even if it was just an hour date. And I just thought, I'm never going to get out of this and I'm never going to find the right person. And the kind of, the, the, the happy ending, if you will, to my book is not, I really thought hard about it because it's not that, oh, you meet someone and then you find true love and it's like really Disney. No, the, the happy ending is that you find peace alone. And whether you're in a relationship now or you're not in a relationship, then it is vital that there are pockets, if not big chunks of time in your day, every every day that you spend alone and you're happy with spending that time alone um I'm sure there's people who've got kids right now who are like oh, I wish I had time alone. <laughs> you know what I mean not giving your giving yourself to another person for the sake of their happiness so yeah eventually I did learn to trust again but that's kind of really in it it was like a book two in terms of my healing that was way down the line yeah I love that. I think it's very easy in this world to become hardened and very bitter by what we've gone through and angry, protective. And when you start doing the work, you realise that's not conducive to happiness, inner peace. And if unless you have that happiness and inner peace, you're never going to be able to connect peacefully with yeah. someone else. 
So I think as we sort of shift into the last part of the episode, I want to start bringing out some more actionable tips and tricks, which obviously everyone must go and buy the book because there is that and so much more in there. But I think what is interesting for me is that I was able to leave the situation that I was in because it was less severe than the one you were in. And I was able to just decide I can't do this anymore. I need to be out of this. I wasn't being financially controlled, financially abused. So I was able to get out. I wanted to be pulled back so many times, but I was able to leave. I was also able to self-fund my own therapy. And that's exactly why Open House exists, because like you said, if every single person could access therapy, it would be a revolutionary experience. But unfortunately, we live in a world where that's just not possible. So I think what I want to ask you now is this is for the people that are the most trapped, the people that they listen to your story and they think, oh, my goodness, I've just heard someone telling my story. Because I think it's very hard when you're in that situation mm-hmm. to find other people that are speaking openly about it. So where do they start? What do they do? They're scared. They're isolated. Where do they start? So I would say like the main thing here is to be calm. And I don't mean that in a patronizing way in terms of the perpetrator's words, but I mean that in the way that what you're going through is very real. And perhaps if you're listening to this now or you've read the book or whatever and you go, oh my God, this is happening to me and I'm terrified and I need to get out now. You could be putting yourself in a very dangerous situation by just packing your bag and going. The rates of femicide post-separation are astronomical and actually higher than if someone is in that relationship, right? So post-separation control is a very real and very frightening thing. The first thing I would say is don't rush it. But it's great that you are now starting to believe what is happening to you. So pack yourself a safety bag. So in that, your ID, some travel documents, whatever you need, like some maybe some um, toiletries. If you have children as well with your perpetrator, then do the same for them. Make sure that everything is done calmly and slowly and discreetly. The last thing that needs to happen is that they find out what is happening. If you are in contact with a trusted friend or a neighbour, alert them in some way this is happening. Could they maybe even hold on to your bag for you? Hide it out of sight. Now, you Women's Aid have a live chat helpline, which is totally free and totally discreet. Have a look at their, their website. Hopefully we'll put them in the, um, in the thingy afterwards. But have a look at live chat from Women's Aid. You can text them. They can give you advice quickly and discreetly and subtly onto your phone. And the National Domestic Abuse Helpline as well is ready and it will help you find refuges if that's what you need. If you're being financially controlled, you have no money. There's a scheme called Rail to uh, Refuge, which is where they will pay your your train tickets and they will get you to a safe place. An additional thing which you mentioned right there was going back to the perpetrator. Now, at the end of my book, I talk about something called uh, hoovering. And hoovering is like nothing to do with the Dyson. It's to do with the fact that your perpetrator will be actively looking to siphon your ego massage. Again, because you were really good at it. You were a bit crap at the end because they destroyed your self-esteem. So you didn't even have it to give. But when you're really out of their life and you've said enough is enough or you've managed to escape in some way, they will try and get you back. Now, it is very likely that you will return to your perpetrator and don't feel shame or embarrassment for doing that. I did. I returned multiple times. And in fact, I would even say I went further. In my book, I talk about soulless late night sex visits. I didn't even return in the way that I was in a relationship. I, I was so raw by that point that all I felt like I was good for was sex. 
But I think in that sense, you will, there'll be multiple women being like, oh my God, that's what I'm doing. Now, again, with that, what happened to me was I finally went, no, enough was enough. And that is when shit really hit the fan. So make sure in the book, I have a thing called a safety squad. So it's basically making sure that you have people that will hold you accountable, a friend that you can trust. And if you are going to go and meet your perpetrator, which hopefully you're not, or even communicate with them, you feel that they will not judge you and and they will say, okay, that's fine. Then I'm going to come with you or I'm going to come over tonight and we're going to talk in whatever way they hold you safe, basically. Getting a therapist, as you said, if you can, or buying a book. And if if it's a really dangerous situation, alerting the domestic abuse units of whatever police force you're near to. But there's kind of key steps that you can do. This is way beyond red flags. This is really how to get out of these things. So helpful. Thank you. And we will link all of those references in the show notes for anyone that needs them or needs to send them on to someone. So I think my very final question is, if someone is starting to date, how can they avoid getting into this situation that can ultimately be so damaging and so destructive? Are there sort of top few red flags that you would keep an eye out for in the initial weeks, sort of months of dating? Yeah, the first one is love bombing, which we've spoken to, which is which we've spoken about, which is the fully knocking you off your feet with compliments. And you will feel it will make you feel uncomfortable. They may buy you loads of gifts. They may take you out for expensive dinners. And you might think, oh, my God, that sounds amazing. But it's it will be used to manipulate you. That's the first one to look out for. They may also say things like you're the woman or you're the person that I've dreamt of. Do you want to have kids? Like I'd love to have kids. I want to marry you. And in the in the whole night, for example, like in the first couple of dates, you might think, oh my God, this is so full on, but kind of nice. Especially women who are in their 30s, they'll be like, shit, this is what I wanted. Great. So watch out for that. The next thing to watch out for is that they are mysterious and not in a sexy way. They are mysterious in that they tell you very little about themselves or they seem to like gloss over details about their lives. You find it difficult to, to find out what they do for work or who they are as a person. It's like they, it, it, one of the factors of, of actual psychopaths is something called glibness, right? Politicians do it really well. They just sort of tell you what you want to hear. And you've got to listen very closely. I think what the mistake I made multiple times is going on dates and drinking too much. And when that happens, you are not paying attention to what the other person is like, right? And you may sometimes be lucky and go on a third date and be like, oh my God, what did I see in this person? But on that first and second date, they want to be the best person. They will bullshit you and bullshit you and tell you like stuff about their life that is just not true. So watch out for that. Then I would watch out for, and this may happen a little bit later on. It has happened to me on first dates before, but this, this thing about negging. Now, negging is um, criticism masked as compliments. So it could be things like, oh, it's amazing that you've got that sports. Uh, one of the things I was working on a sports radio station at the time, and I didn't, didn't know anything about sports, right? And I remember saying it to the guy I was seeing, and he was like, oh, my God, it's amazing that you've got this sports job, but like nothing about sports aren't there people far more placed than you better placed than you to do this or it, he would say things like oh god you've got like a lot of makeup on today you don't really need it like last time I saw you you look stunning wow. and so you're hearing he said stunning but I'm also really hurting from that no and then the classic follow-up to that is if you say dude like that's completely out of order 
they will say, oh my God, I was joking. Classic, right? It's all in, that is, we are very, very, very gently walking towards gaslighting. Oh my God, I was joking. It's all in your head. You're paranoid. That's where this is leading. So watch out for negging. I think just to kind of finish one of, I mean, we've talked a lot about gut instinct and listening to your intuition, but one of the things that's just super key, and if if it's the one thing that you take from this podcast, it's basically that instead of asking how you feel about them or you hope you made a good impression, ask how they made you feel about yourself, right? So if you come away from that date and you've ticked up all of the things, you haven't drunk too much, like you've had a great time with them, but there's something where you're like, I feel a bit smaller than I did before. I feel a bit teary even. I feel a bit like I've lost myself, even just a percentage. Then pay attention to that because there will be a reason for that. And it's not because you're paranoid or you're needy. It's because they've made you feel that way. Oh, you have given us so much value in the space of a 30-minute episode. I, I honestly can't thank you. And Open House's mission is just to get therapy-like content to people that can't make it to therapy. And I think the journey and the mission that you are on and sharing your experience, I can't thank you enough. You are you are helping more men and women than you know. So thank you so much for joining us. We will link everything about your wonderful book in the show notes and your Instagram handle. And so everyone can come and find you and follow you on your journey um, and waiting for that next book, which you mentioned. <laughs> it's coming. <Already. laughs> so thank, thank you so you. much. You are an amazing human being and so grateful to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Take care.